Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read a book more like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through my Google form located in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you're interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content including early reads and pre-pub author chats and bonus episodes. For March, we are reading Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl by Renee Rosen. And for April, my selection is The Comeback Summer by writing duo Allie Brady. I just added Banyan Moon by Tao Tai for May and The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman for June. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, I am chatting with Jacqueline Winspear about The White Lady. Jacqueline is the author of several New York Times bestsellers in her historical fiction series, featuring Maisie Dobbs. She has won numerous awards for her work, including the Agatha, Alex, and McCavity Awards. She was born and raised in the county of Kent in England. She studied at the University of London's Institute of Education and later worked in academic publishing, in higher education, and in marketing communications in the United Kingdom before emigrating to the United States. I hope you enjoy our conversation. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II. And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Welcome, Jacqueline. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? I am doing very well as well. And I have to tell you, this is a bit of a dream come true for me because I have read your books since you first started writing Maisie Dobbs, and this is a standalone, The White Lady, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But I am a huge, huge fan, and I'm so happy that you're on my podcast. And I'm happy to be here. I'm thrilled. Thank you very much indeed. It's lovely. I loved The White Lady. It was interesting to read something a little different than Maisie. And I know you've done a standalone in the past, and you've done some nonfiction. But let's talk about The White Lady. And before we do that, will you give me a quick synopsis for those that won't have read it yet? 
I wish I could give, you know, whenever someone asks for a quick synopsis, I, my heart goes thump because I've never been a person that could put in about 40 words uh, what I could put in 400,000, you know. <laughs> so basically, uh, this follows the story of uh, Eleanor DeWitt or Eleanor White, roughly the, means the same thing. She has to change her name at one point to her mother's name. We first meet her in 1947, England. And in 1947, the United Kingdom was, uh, you know, people said that the, the peace was worse than the war in terms of uh, the deprivation and so on that went on. And uh, she is living alone in a very quiet life in, a, in the village of Shacklehurst in Kent. However, Eleanor has a background. And one of the reasons she's living quietly in a little village in Kent is that she has fought in two wars basically from childhood to adulthood. And in childhood, in uh, Belgium, where she was born and raised, she was trained during the First World War as a, a resistance operative and indeed a killer, an assassin. And that is a weight that she bears. And, you know, when wartime comes along, uh, no country can afford to leave talent behind. And she has a talent. And she's now li living in Britain in the Second World War, and she is recruited to do it roughly the same thing. Now in her quiet life, she is she's drawn out of that life when she realizes her neighbors, a very lovely little family, are under threat from a London organized crime gang. And that's as much as I should really say. <laughs> that's the perfect synopsis. Well, what made you decide to write a standalone after writing Maisie Dobbs for so long? And is this the start of a series or is it just a standalone? Well, the easy, the easy answer w w will be my first answer, which is it is not going to be the part, a, a series, unless I come up with some wild, wild idea and want to write a sequel. But it is a pure standalone. And I have wanted to write about this woman who leapt into my imagination when I was a kid. And I've wanted to write her for, about her long before Maisie ever came into my life. And... Uh, uh, yeah, so she was she was inspired by someone I, I whose path whose path I crossed in childhood, and just grew from there as I garnered more information and gathered information and research background. I realized that I could create this character that was very authentic and followed history. In fact, the history of women and war, and also the history of children and war. I wanted very much to write it, and uh, back in uh, I think it was. 2018, I, I said, I told my publisher, this is something I want to write. And my then editor at HarperCollins, Jennifer Bath, said, I think this is great. Yes, let's go for it. That's wonderful because I know sometimes when authors are writing series, editors aren't always excited about something different. So I'm glad she was receptive. It is a, a bit of a leap when you have an established series because, of course, from a commercial point of view, everybody wants the, the next book in the series. But I I really wanted to write this and uh, come hell or high water, I was going to write it. It was not the easiest book to write either because it, it challenged uh, all our notions or mine. It challenged me to write about children and war. That was one of the themes. And that's not an easy place to go. It's really not. And you mentioned earlier how difficult it was in the UK after the war. And that's something I was not familiar with until the last couple of years. I think people write so much about the wars. But there hadn't been a ton of focus on what those years were like right after the war and how there was still so much rationing. People were trying to recover. So many people had died. 
it's a tough time period. Many, many people died. In fact, in the first two years of uh, the Second World War, there were way more civilian deaths than military deaths. I think 60,000 people were killed during bombings. And after the war came to an end, rushing didn't end until the end of 1954. There were still massive shortages through 1955 and 56. And in fact, just to give you an idea, when I was a kid and we're talking about, you know, mid 60s, we'd go up to London. We lived way in the country and our families lived, uh, my parents' families lived in London. We would go up on the train or the, or the motor bus. And, you know, you, you know, the, there were still bomb sites. I used to play with my cousins in bomb sites. You know, you'd be running over rubble and things like that. It hadn't all been cleared. And in fact, the last bomb sites were cleared from sort of the east end of London when they were building the arenas for the 2012 Olympics. Really? Yeah, it, it was a pool that hung over Britain for a long time. And in fact, people talk about, for example, you know, I guess in terms of uh, folk history, you know, the Beatles. (laughs) And I I think, you know, 1964 was a real turning point when Britain started to just let go, started to let go of the Second World War. But you you can't let go of wartime that easy, easy. And nor could Germany or France or all the other countries that were bombed, Poland, etc., when, you know, you, you have so much destruction around you. I can remember being on the train and as we would go, we would come into the outskirts of London and then more towards central London. And looking at a row of houses was sometimes looking at a mouth with teeth missing. There'd be houses just gone, you know. And, and of course, the rubble had been cleared, but it was still these big gaps. And to think that rationing went on for almost a decade after the war was over. There were certain foods as they came back into circulation. That was obviously wonderful. But uh, even in 1947, they were having to cut back again. On, so they were about to you know, tighten the rationing on bacon, for example. Gasoline, petrol, you couldn't go anymore if you had a car, if you were lucky enough to have a car. 90 miles a month was your limit. And you, you were seriously fined if, you did more than, if they found you did more than 90 miles in a month. Well, and you address that in your book. Absolutely. I couldn't have, I couldn't have Eleanor leaping into a car and just running all over the countryside without there being a consequence. And I thought that was fascinating. I mean, I did not know that until I read this book. I knew about some of the food from other stories, but I had no idea that they were still rationing gas then. Yeah, yes. And, it, you know, some things came in and went out again and so on and so forth, but definitely in 1947. And I remember my parents saying to me, you know, that so many people said the peace was worse than the war. Also, do bear in mind that immediately after the war, you know, the Berlin airlift, it was really important to make sure the people of Germany had food and they were really starving. So at that time, a lot of food was being shipped into Germany and during the Berlin airlift. And uh, that's when bread got really, really bad in Britain. You know why? Because they made up the flour with chalk. Yeah. And you broke open a loaf and it was just this gray, you know, it wasn't like real bread unless you lived in the country and you had some, you know, you know, the black market was rampant. The black, it was, it was pretty big throughout the war to tell you the truth. But then in the post-war years, there was a very healthy black market going on. So Jacqueline, we were just in France on a family vacation over the holidays. And we toured the Normandy area. And one of the things we noticed was several of the areas we toured had all of the bomb sites still left there. 
Obviously, the bombs are long gone, but the area is just pocked with all of the holes from where the bombs fell, and they've left them there as a reminder. The other thing that was fascinating to me was that the war clearly occupied their minds for decades after it was over. I would say it's even still a very prominent discussion today just because of the number of people that visit those sites. Well, that's certainly true of Britain. I mean, I've, I've been to the three times the um, battlefields of World War I battlefields of the Somme and Ypres. And in fact, at that point, you know, they were still, you know, farmers plowing fields were still turning over shells which they actually deliberately leave at the side of the road, in, in, in many cases, not, not to show you, oh, this is what went on, but because on a regular basis, the military come round, they load up the shells, they take them away, and they have uh, controlled explosions. And, and, and in fact, one of the, I can't believe this, but one of the, uh, on one of my visits to the battlefields, at, at roughly the same time, and I'm glad I wasn't caught up in this, some guy was touring the battlefields and, and found a pretty darn large shell. And he thought, oh, I think I'll take that home. So he shoved it in the trunk of his car and got on the, the you know, went onto the channel tunnel where it was discovered in a spot check. And of course, they had to close down the whole tunnel. It was a live shell. It could still have blown up. Oh, my gosh. I'm sure everybody was about to shake him. Like, what were you thinking? But it, this this whole phenomenon, you know, the, the post-war years is, is something I wrote about, you know, a couple of years ago in my memoir. This time next year, we'll be laughing. You know, my parents ex- experienced themselves of leaving London in the post-war years to get away from bomb sites and from that whole sort of darkness, so to speak. Well, you mentioned a little while ago that Eleanor was inspired by someone. That was one of my questions for you, was if she had been inspired by anyone you knew or someone you'd read about. When I was a child, my parents, you know, they, before I was born, they left London as, as very young, a very young couple. And as I said, I wrote about this in my memoir. And I even wrote about Eleanor, but I hadn't called her Eleanor at that point. I hadn't given her a name. But when I was about three years old, three and a half, my parents lived in what was, would be called a tied cottage. It was actually tied to my mother's job and the land. My mother was the bookkeeper across four farms in this, uh, ma- within this massive area of forest. And uh, she kept all the books for the farmers and everything like that. So we lived in this little cottage and every day we would walk down to the farm. And my mum worked in the office and I had a place to play with my coloring books and so on. And we would very often pass this lady and you never seemed to see her until she was right there, you know, and she would be wearing her um, Macintosh, you know, sort of with a belt tied and a hat pulled down over her head. And, and my mum would say, good morning. And uh, she, at first she didn't say good morning. And then she started to say good morning. And I, I, she just really stayed in my mind. And one day as she passed, having greeted us, we walked on. And I can remember looking back at her just as she turned around to look back at us. And my mum leaned down and said to me, She's one of those women who parachuted into, you know, into France during the war. You know, it turned out the, a few people knew this. The farmer's wife knew it, and I think my mother realised that this was a story that was a little bit too old for me because she said, "I said, what's a parachute? <laughs> what's parachuting?" But I never forgot her. And you know what it is? It's 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 children and secrecy. The fact that someone was living in secret, as I later found out, you know, as as that sort of childhood curiosity became a more adult inquiry, 
that people lived in secret. And the idea of living in secret just fascinated me. And of course, I then, as I grew to teenhood and beyond that, you know, I was, I just, I never forgot her. I never forgot her. And she became Eleanor. Well, and I think you're right. Kids do love secrets and the idea that someone would be living that way, but also that she was doing something so cool as parachuting because you're like, I don't even know what that is. I know it just sounded so, and, and she lived in what was called a grace and favor house. And, uh, a grace and favor house belonged to the, uh, basically belonged to the country, belonged to the monarchy. A lot of those lands were what were called crown lands, and they have, have since, they are now belong to what's called forestry England. But a grace and favor home was given to someone who had served the monarchy or served the country, and it was by the grace of the monarch uh, as, as a favor for services. And there's a whole definition of that. But, you know, often, for example, former ladies in waiting and employees of a palace or government workers, they, dependent on what they've done, might be given a grace and favor home to live in. And Eleanor lived in a grace and favor home. That's all the locals knew. And that type of house would be available to Eleanor until she passed away. Is that generally how it worked? Yes, that's how it worked. I was glad you explained that in the book because I wasn't familiar with that term and it makes perfect sense why they give the house and how it operates, but I didn't know the terminology and I'm glad you explained it now because I was actually going to ask you that. (laughs) Well, what about Jim's crime family? So Eleanor gets involved with the family that lives close by to her, Jim and Rose and Susie, and Jim's family is a crime family in London and there's some drama related to that and Eleanor gets involved with them. Did anybody inspire his family or where did that idea come from? (laughs) Organized crime, you know, really went through the roof during the war years. And a lot of that was to do with, you know, the black market. And it was, you know, everybody, people, actually people were starving, you know, in places. I can, and just to give you an example, I can remember when I was about 16, my best friend went on a diet and I had not even heard the word before. So I came home and I thought, well, this sounds like fun. You know, she's eating Rivita crisp bread and a piece of cheese every day and I'm going in with my doorstep sandwiches. And I said to my mother, when you were 16, what did you do for a diet? And my mother was incredibly annoyed with me. And she said, Jackie, when I was 16, it was all I could do to get enough to eat. Don't you dare talk to me about diets. And so that's how it was for many people. There, you know, and so hence there was a black market. You know, uh, for example, there might be a raid on the sugar factory and then suddenly, you know, people are knocking at the door saying, would you like two pounds of sugar? And here's how much it will cost you. Things like that. And that went on after the war. But here's the interesting thing that happened after the war or at the war's end. During the war, a lot of, uh, depending on, on their, depending upon their, their crime, a lot of young men in particular were released from prison. They were given the choice of joining the armed forces working in, with forestry and farms, that sort of thing, to, to take the place of farm workers who had enlisted, or they were just going to be you know, banged up for longer. That was it. So a lot of them said, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going to join the army. And many of those criminals were involved for, in a lesser or greater way in organized crime. And if they weren't before, they soon would be. And one of the things, and, and many of them you know, showed such bravery such bravery, but they were also learning more skills in the art of killing. And the other thing is that a lot of them came home with weapons. And the government, and this comes up in the book, were actually having amnesties. 
because they weren't just coming back with, uh, and, and, and in some cases, keeping their own weapons. They were coming home, you know, having found Lugers on the bodies of Germans and so on and so forth. But also when the American army, you know, up sticks and left at the end of the war, and they obviously filtered their way out, they were leaving behind an awful lot of stuff. Everything from blankets to motorbikes to food, you know, and also they left a lot of fair number of weapons around. So suddenly the criminal element, organized crime in London, had their hands on more weapons than they had seen for a long time. And, you know, people were still very hard up for money. And, you know, there were a lot of smash and grab raids, for example, on jewelers in London and other places. There was doping of racehorses and dogs, you know, racing greyhounds, all manner of organized crime and prostitution, uh, which I hit a bit of a flat spot when all the soldiers started to go home. So, and there, yeah, it was it was quite a tumultuous time, particularly in the cities. Not so much in the not so much in rural areas. There's no, wasn't a lot of money to be made in rural areas. Which is why Jim headed out of the city trying to get away from his Jim, family. He, yeah, and, and Jim's a young man who was in what's called, what was called a borstal, which was uh, an institution for younger offenders. He, he came out of, the, uh, out of borstal. He'd been caught doing a job. He went to borstal. He was uh, let out. He joined the army, and he made something of himself in a way. And he knew, he, he knew that if he was with other guys that, you know, lived a different kind of life. Other young men that were not, you know, their families weren't, you know, from that of that ilk. And he realized he wanted a different life. And he had met Rose and his, uh, his, his wife, and they just wanted to get away from all that. Yes, but unfortunately, his family didn't have the same ideas in mind. Family come knocking at the <laughs> yes. door. They're like, no, thank you. Yeah, they, he had a skill that they wanted, and we can't talk about the skill. Exactly. I don't <laughs> want to have any spoilers. Yeah. Well, what surprised you the most when writing The White Lady? What surprised me the most? You know, I go into the books knowing my, I know my research, I know my background, I know my story. I will be perfectly honest with you. I totally underestimated the emotional impact it would have on me. And I can't tell you exactly why, because that would give away part of the plot. But, you know, let's just say I was one of the, the themes, if you will, is that of children and war. And that's something I feel very strongly about. And so it's, it's, I, I, was, I was very tired once I'd finished. I was very tired. And also when you're writing, it doesn't matter what you're writing, whether it's, you know, from a series that you write on a regular basis or whether it's a standalone, there, it comes with an element of, you know, you, you sort of feel the fear and do it anyway. And I was really worried with this one, as I was with The Care and Management of Lies when I wrote that, which was my other standalone set in The Great War. I didn't know whether I'd be able to pull it off in the way that I wanted. And it's, it's almost, I tell you what it's like, it's like molding clay on the wheel. That first draft is basically a lump of clay, and then you've got to go in and you've got to create something. And you don't know whether you're going to create the vase that you see in your head or whether you're going to just end up with a lump of clay with you know, your fingerprints all over it. <laughs> and, and that's what I feared. I, I feared my fingerprints all over it. But I ended up feeling that I'd done what I wanted to do. It's, it's really interesting because when my literary agent read it, she said to me, I think this says so much of what you've wanted to say for a long time about children and war. And war is, is not only 
the war that we think of as soldiers, armies, and so on and so forth, but there's the war on the streets as well. And I mentioned this because uh, I think it was in 2018, the journalist, war correspondent, British war correspondent, Christina Lamb, wrote a piece in The Times, and uh, she was reporting on knife crime in London amongst youngsters. And the mother of, uh, I think it was someone who had, had died, came up to her and said, you know, at some event or whatever, you know, you write about war, it's about time you started writing about our wars. And uh, so, you know, there's Jim has been involved in a different kind of war as well, the war he grew up in, which is the war on the streets. And I think that's what I like so much about it, because obviously the background of World War I and World War II are in the story. Yes. And there's a lot dealing with the aftermath of World War II. But you're also dealing with families and what it means to grow up in a particular family and how that impacts you. And as you mentioned earlier, Jim doesn't even realize that other families operate differently than his. And he's sort of astounded and dismayed when he learns, oh, I grew up in the wrong family. You know, like I could have had a totally different upbringing here. And so he wants to set himself straight and have a better life for his family. And so that's an important topic as well. And that's why I was curious about the crime family, if there was a particular one you were modeling it after, or just the fact that that was so prevalent then. You know, the thing is that anyone who grew up in a particular city, and let's take London, for example, they, they knew about organized crime. You know, I mean, if someone would knock at the door and say, hello, love, do you want a couple of pounds of sugar? You know, and then name a price and no one would turn their nose up at a couple of pounds of sugar. You know, and, you know, people just were people were aware of what was going on. And also there was definitely, you know, in certain parts of London, there was a sense that the police couldn't help you out. But, you know, it might be a crime family, but they were keeping your streets clean. They were getting rid of the quote unquote filth. I mean, some of the most awful crime families in London, people locally revered them because they were keeping their own streets clean. They saw them as the protectors. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you see that over and over again. And I think you see it play out different ways as well. Even in the US, I'm frequently talking about some of these corporations like DuPont and the tobacco industry who are poisoning everybody, but because they so take care of the town where their factories are, nobody wants to go against them because they've provided the parks and the schools and the amphitheaters and everything. You know, I think that that's a story that plays out all over the place in various forms. It's a universal truth. Yeah, I think it's just something that happens and it is par for the course. Well, what about which character you enjoyed writing the most and which character you enjoyed writing the least? Oh, I think in a way I, I have to enjoy every character. You know, I, I can get uppity about some characters and, uh, but, but there has to be an element. I think actually there's enjoyment, but then there's also the curiosity. I'm curious about all the characters. I uh, I loved writing about Eleanor. Cecily, you know, was a, a, a little, you know, could, could be a little piece of work, but, you know, I felt for her. I absolutely felt for her. And I wanted to show that balance that, that there's a re that, you know, I think the thing is what we look for when we're in, in fiction, whether we know we're looking for it or not, it, are universal truths. And the fact is that people's behaviors very often, maybe even nine times out of 10, I mean, they're dictated by what has gone on before. And, you know, that's definitely true of, of, of each character in the book. It's what has gone on before. And that was something that I really felt about Eleanor. 
there she was as a, a young girl. And by the way, the organization that she worked for in the Great War is absolutely happened. It was called La Dame Blanche, the White Lady. And uh, I started delving into that when I was writing, oh, which book was it? I think it was A Lesson in Secrets, uh, you know, and I, I delved into that a bit and, and you know, read some great books and, and some written immediately after the First World War about this resistance network in Belgium that was all women. And why was it? I mean, I say all women. There were obviously, it was chiefly women bankrolled by the British, because most of the Belgian men were either in the, you know, they were old, they were boys, and if they didn't come into those two categories, they were likely dead. You know, many of them at the front fighting, and uh, some had been sent to work camps. And so it was left to the women to conduct acts of intelligence gathering, sabotage, and if necessary, assassination. And I love that so many more of these stories about women who have to perform as as the white ladies did and various groups are now coming to the forefront and being written about because for so long it was just menly stories about men. I know this this is always a, a challenge in wartime because very often and you particularly saw this in the first world war that men are encouraged to go to war to protect the little women at home and it's really tricky when those little women at home are then suddenly in war work themselves, uh, whatever that is. And that was a real challenge in the First World War, you know, particularly, you know, say in Britain, when, you know, there were these posters with women of Britain say, go. And there were the women of Britain, you know, I mean, going into war work, into munitions factories. 50,000 women worked for the then fledgling British Secret Service. And, you know, they were code, and this is First World War, code breakers, Gold guides ran messages for the Secret Service, right up to some of them. You know, older women act, were managers. They were, they were in senior roles, 50,000 women in that. And then there were the women who worked in shipyards. Women, there was not a field of endeavor left untouched by a woman's hand in the Great War. And that was a, real, that was a really tricky one to balance for the, in terms of the public viewpoint. How do we get men to go to war to protect the girls at home? when the girls at home look like they can really take care of themselves. And it really changed the dynamic of the entire country in terms of service work and, you know, just the way that people worked before the war and what happened after the war. You know, it really did. It just, the, the, the whole perspective, you know, there were a lot of women who in the Great War discovered that they, you know, that, that they were worthy, that they worked outside the home, they had independence, and oh yeah, they had money in their pockets. And they didn't want to go back to not having money in their pockets and not having that level of freedom. I mean, if you worked in a munitions factory, you, I mean, you certainly didn't have pay parity with men. But, you know, someone like my grandmother, you know, who was working at the Woolwich Arsenal, she was suddenly away from home living in uh, for, for the most part, in uh, sort of like a dormitory. And when she was not working, if she wanted to go down the pub with her mates, she could. As a teenager, your know, late teens, early 20s, she could, she had choices. And I can remember, you know, and I've, I've spoken about this before, listening to some uh, audio at the Imperial War Museum in London, where I've done a lot of research into both world wars. It was in the 1970s, they were, you know, endeavoring to get. Uh, personal stories from the World War One generation before they passed, really passed away. I think it was the sixties and seventies. And hearing this woman 
probably answering, because you didn't hear the question, you just heard the answer. And I think she was probably asked, how did the Great War change your life? And you suddenly heard this very doughty woman say, well, my dear, let me tell you, the Great War opened the stable door. And when that stable door was opened, we women bolted. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that kind of sums it up, you know. But Eleanor, you know, both uh, you know, Eleanor has eff effectively a child, 13, 14 years old, was bearing a lot of responsibility, as children do in war. And people, you know, the history is often brushed under the carpet, the extent to which children work in wartime and are called upon during wartime. And you know, it's it's devastating for her. And, and what I wanted to track was how that experience framed the rest of her life, if you will. And, and the book is not without its humorous points, obviously. It's not all dark and dismal, but it is, you know, it, 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 it's the framework. I mean, my dad was, what, 13 when he was a messenger, a, run, a runner in London during the Second World War, had to run messages when bombs were falling. Well, and they don't have childhoods, for one. You know, your, your childhood is cut off, but also it leaves a lot of scars. But I definitely did not feel like the book was super dark at all. There's definitely humor. There's a lot of really cool history. I mean, some of the things we've talked about that I didn't know, like the gas rationing and various things. And I love how you just weave it right in. You know, it's just a part of the story, but I learned so much. And I just felt it was really well done. And I always enjoy Maisie, so I'm hoping that They'll be returned to Maisie, but this was a wonderful break in between. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I loved writing it. I loved writing it. And, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, <laughs> I had a wonderful opportunity. It was great. Well, I'm so glad. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Well, let me see. A, a book that I'm, I'm sure you've, you've talked about uh, in the past. I loved Lessons in Chemistry by uh, Bonnie Garmus. Yes. I think it's a terrific book. Louise Penny's latest book, A World of Curiosities. You know, I'm a real fangirl. And I'm currently reading a, a book that's uh, uh, it's, it's nonfiction. It's The Song of the Cell by Siddhartha um, Mukherjee. And it's about cells and all the, and the research that has gone into cells, as in our bodies, since earliest times. And it's an incredibly readable book. And uh, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying that. And uh, some friends of mine just recommended another book, which they, you know, reread re just recently, and I had never read. And they said, "Oh, you're you're going to love it, Jackie. You should read it." And it's a Wallace Stegner book called "All the Little Live Things." So that's on my TBR list. Well, I hate to admit I have never read a Louise Penny book. I hate to even say that, and people are always raving about her books. So at some point, I'm going to have to do that. But now I feel like because there are so many of them that I, you know, I don't have time to go back and start from book one, and it's hard to leap into the middle of a series, but at some point I will do that. Well, I've got an idea. You do, the, the, the narrator of the audio versions is absolutely great and, and really lovely resonant voice and so on, and uh, a long journey, nothing better than Louise Penny on audio. <laughs> That's so funny that you say that because one of my good friends from college and I were just talking on the phone a couple weeks ago, and she's made her way through the entire series because she road trips between West Virginia and Wisconsin to see her family. And so she goes back and forth a fair amount. And so she's like, I've just gotten through almost all of the Louise Pennies that way. I, I tell you, I, I, I would reread, quote unquote, uh, Louise Penny's books on any long journey. Uh, I, I, I love them. And the narrator is exceptionally good. Exceptionally good narrator. Okay, good. 
There you go. I now have a plan. Yes, somebody, you know, someone telling you a story. It's 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 great. <laughs> Good. Okay. Well, next time I have a long road trip, I know what I'm queuing up. Excellent. Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. This was truly a gift to get to speak with you. Well, I, the, the gift is all mine. Thank you. And to reconnect. And thank you very much indeed for having me on. Thank you. Of course. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.